had this really overwhelming sense that I was dying. Deep within me, I was like, you, you are really not well, girl. From the team behind Stylist, this is Nobody Told Me. Stories of life, love, grief, success and failure, and the lessons learned by the women who survived to tell the tale. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist. In today's episode, we're joined by Candice Brathwaite, a hugely popular parenting influencer and the founder of Make Motherhood Diverse, an online initiative that aims to encourage a more accurately representative and diverse depiction of motherhood in the media. She is also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, I Am Not Your Baby Mother. In 2013, Candice gave birth to her first child, her daughter Esme. But the birth she dreamt of quickly turned into one of nightmares and she subsequently found herself fighting for her life. Since her daughter's birth and her survival, a 2018 report by Embrace revealed black women were five times more likely to die in childbirth or postpartum recovery than white women. And Candice has been a leading voice in campaigning for a change in how black women are cared for during maternity and childbirth. This is Candice's story in her own words. My name is Candice Brathwaite. Nobody told me I would almost die in childbirth. The first time we met in real life, we went to a bar. I remember it was summer because we sat outside and then he turned up and he was really tall and he had really good teeth. And we just sat there till literally closing time. Like we just got on and I thought, oh, you know, I thought to myself, well, even if he's not my boyfriend, I think I've met a really great friend. Our relationship got serious very quickly. We started living together about three, four months in. I became pregnant with Esme a year, literally a year after we met. As a surprise, I was on the pill at the time. But for some reason, I was okay with the idea. I would say almost excited. I was like, okay, I think I can do this. Motherhood was never on the cards for me. I was the kind of person who thought they wouldn't have kids. I was very anti-motherhood. I'm the eldest of three to a single mum. And I spent a lot of my time missing out on my childhood, helping to raise them. was meeting someone who was obviously going to be a really cool co-parent that just made me perhaps relax into that idea. When we took the test and it came back positive, I just remember us both being so scared because as much as we were terribly in love, we were also terribly poor. And I was like, oh, you you know, you can't feed a baby love. Like, and I was so consumed with fear about raising my child in situations I'd been raised in when there really was no food or there were bailiffs at the door. But I remember my granddad saying to me, don't make a permanent decision based on temporary circumstances. And so I was like, actually, I'm gonna listen to my granddad. And, and we decided to have Esme. And now I'm, I'm glad we did, obviously. I get morning sickness or actually all day sickness really early on. Once the all day sickness had passed and that dropped off at about four months, I felt great. I remember even going to Notting Hill Carnival. 
I must have been about seven months pregnant. I went to Notting Hill Carnival in a crop top. It was amazing. I was giving you my best Demi Moore pregnant life. It was so cute. <laughs> and I loved being pregnant. I don't think I was prepared for what was to come though. I had really high, beautiful, spiritual almost expectations for my birth with Esme. I was really committed to the idea of a water birth. I was vehemently against medical intervention. I was expecting it to be this natural, spiritual experience, but nobody told me that I would almost die in childbirth. By 38 weeks, thereabout, Esme's head still wasn't engaged. Basically, she was not trying to get out of there. And the midwife was like, looking at the fact her head isn't engaged and looking at you and your body type. So I'm really short. I'm barely five feet. The lady was like, women of your stature normally really struggle to give birth naturally. She was like, I've been doing this 30 years. I think you're going to have a C-section, but because it's your first child, they're going to take you the long way round. They're going to induce you. And it was a lovely black lady, but I literally just burst into tears and never wanted to see her again because she was the first person to even make me think about another version of giving birth. Lo and behold, time went on. My due date came and went. So of course I was induced. Esme didn't respond to any of the methods of inducing until they decided to hook me up to a drip that was supposed to trick my body into believing it was going into labour. After 19 hours of being on that drip, I dilated by one centimetre. Now, just for clarity, you need to be at 10 centimetres to start pushing. And that had been 19 hours of being strapped to a bed, not being allowed to stand or walk, and I wasn't allowed to eat. By that time, I was over it because this drip they put you on makes your contractions so painful. And I was like, I'm calling time on this. I asked them for a C-section. And as I'm being wheeled down to theatre, it's coming up to midnight now. I remember the surgeon saying, oh, let's hurry this one along because I was meant to be home hours ago. It's a really harsh moment, a C-section you're not ready for. Um, you're in this cold room. I remember it feeling like a morgue, the operating theatre. I'd never even broken a bone in my life. So this was my first surgery, major surgery, and I'm wide awake. I remember not being able to see very well because someone had forgotten my glasses. And so everything's really quite blurry. I can just about make out the clock on the wall. I remember turning to Papa B, that's what I call him, my other half, and saying she's out, and him saying no she's not. And then two seconds later, you heard a cry, and then they lift her up in this Lion King-esque way over the sheet so I can't see my guts. And I can barely see her because I can't see anything. And I'm, I, I remember just feeling so detached from the situation. I couldn't make out her features or her face. In retrospect, it didn't get off to a flying star. I didn't feel that bond in that moment at all. When we first took Esme home, of course it was happy because you've got this little baby, but also because she's my first child, 
I was so overwhelmed with the realization that this was all on me. As three days go on, I find I'm starting to feel worse, not better. My wound really hurts. I'm discombobulated. I'm, every time I sleep, I'm sweating through to the mattress. And I told my midwives, you know, I really don't feel so well. I, I think something's not right. I was constantly told that I was overthinking it. I'm just really tired. Trying to get healthcare professionals to listen to me was a really difficult task. I had this really overwhelming sense that I was dying. Deep within me, I was like, you, you are really not well, girl. Thank God, I think on the third or fourth night, we were so tired. She fell asleep on my chest and during the night, she must have wriggled down and the weight of her body made an infected sac which was building beneath my C-section wound explode and start to make its way out through my stitches. I thought, oh, I know they said baby's poo was going to stink, but this is just taking liberties. The smell was so bad, it woke up Papa B. And we were heaving. That's how bad the smell was. I've gone downstairs to make her a bottle and he's decided to change her nappy. And at the same moment, we both scream because he's opened the nappy and seen it's empty and put two and two together. As I've descended the stairs this slime has started to leak down my legs. When the ambulance came to the house to pick me up, to rush me back to hospital, I remember giggling and the paramedic being like, what's so funny? And I remember saying, well, they'll have to believe me now, won't they? We can't ignore this smell. Like, <laughs> And I think... It was part fear, part me being just sick and deluded, but I was, I actually just saw it as like, boom, 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 tsh, got ya, I, you know, finally some proof. We arrive at the hospital and before I'm taken to my own private room, I'm put in the A&E area and I remember the smell being so bad, the nurse who had to deal with me physically couldn't stay in the cubicle he was like I'm so sorry but I can't do this because he was heaving and then I got moved to this private room on the maternity ward which was very awful because I'm now not with my newborn and my body is reacting to the sound of other people's babies so someone's baby's crying and my boobs are beginning to swell up and leak I remember a nurse bringing me tea and toast and just as I was about to bite into the toast, like a registrar comes flying into the room and she's fuming and she's like, I told them that you were not supposed to eat because you are going to surgery right now. Then I burst into tears because I'm like, could someone explain what's going on? Because what's so funny is I've been telling you guys for a couple of days now that I'm not feeling well. And all of a sudden you're saying surgery, like you need to bring it down the notch and explain some things to me. She sits down on the edge of the bed and she explains to me that um, it's sepsis and they're worried about my vitals. I was like, I'm not going to surgery. I was like, I've got a newborn at home. Just give me some antibiotics and send me on my way. And she got really stern. She was like, 
I need to tell you right now that if you refuse surgery, we will be taking you to the morgue in the morning. How do you want to do this? That was a proper wake up call. I was like, oh, okay, I guess we're going to surgery then. And I was being wheeled down to surgery, I think, in the next 45 minutes. It brought up such trauma for me because my dad had died of sepsis. He had caught the common flu, which had turned into septicemia, and it had um, strangled his vital organ, so to speak. So to even hear the, that word was a massive trigger. I remember a bit of the countdown when you're gonna go under. And I remember my last words being, don't let me die. Because I've just had a baby. And of course she's at the forefront of my mind. I remember coming around and I'm in a private room, a very big private room, and I try and move, but I've got all of these tubes coming out of me. I've got like eight tubes coming out of me. And I'm looking down at the end of the bed and I can make out my stepdad and Papa B and my nan and my mum. And also I can see Esme in like a car seat. Everyone looked petrified, but I'm I'm still in and out. So a part of me is like, are you dead? Because it just... It was, it just felt like I was underwater. They had drained over 300 mil of infected pus off of the C-section site. And now I had to be on an IV of antibiotics because they were trying to bring the infection down. Like I just wasn't getting better. I kept sweating, I kept feeling dizzy. And then I was in intensive care for five weeks, so I wasn't able to see Esme. She had to, had already been tested to see if she had perhaps caught the infection via breast milk. Luckily for me, we were really struggling with her latch, so I was more dependent on formula, which uh, I thank God for that. But yeah, I just remember it being a really lonely time. I was so lonely and so bored. I felt so distraught about not being with Esme. I saw her on FaceTime every day, multiple times a day, but it just wasn't the same thing. And I was very worried about what the time apart would do to our bonding and our relationship. Papa B's paternity leave is only two weeks. He's had to go back to work. And so Esme is now living with her grandparents. And I've come out of hospital and gone straight to that house and I can barely walk because I had 24 staples on my bikini line, like keeping that C-section wound clamped together. And I just remember like picking her up and her just bursting into tears. She didn't know me at all. I just tried to be with her as much as possible. I'd let her sleep in the bed with me so she could get used to my smell and the sound of my voice. And I just desperately tried to make up for lost time. But I just worked really hard to help her understand that I was her mum. 
I think that separation still affects the way Esme interacts with me till this day. I realised pretty early on, or I felt pretty early on, that I'd been hard done by, that there, there were gaps in my care. I felt that, I would say, the second the registrar came storming in and was like, you know, we've got to rush you back to surgery. The problem was is that I had no mummy friends. I was the first in my friendship group to have children, so there was no one to discuss my birth story with or to compare it with so to speak Papa B was adamant from the get-go that we file a complaint and then go on to sue but I just didn't have the energy I still had a newborn baby at home that I wasn't connecting with and so it wasn't until many years later the back end of 2018 when the Embrace report came out which outlined the figures that black women in the UK are five times more likely to die in childbirth that all of the neon lights went off I was like hooray because by this time I'd got more mummy friends I'd spoken to more black women and unfortunately birth stories like mine within the black community are very very common they are more common than you having that holistic easy birth for sure the issue is especially in medicine without data no one wants to listen and so once that data came out I clung to it like a lifeboat It's so funny, when I fell pregnant with RJ, which was four years after Esme was born, by Mm. then I'd had time to deal with a lot of the trauma. Mm. I was toying with the idea of having another baby. So when I found out I was pregnant with our son RJ, we were actually, dare I say, happy. We weren't as financially stable as we are now, but we weren't as poor as when we had Esme. We understood what could go wrong giving birth and we worked hard to make sure that care providers understood our worries and that my care was always at the forefront of their minds. But the amazing thing is that his birth was just blissful. It was an elective C-section, but I do want women to know that elective C-sections can be just as empowering and as wonderful as a water birth that isn't aided by pain medication. It was absolutely wonderful. I could see him for a start because I remembered my glasses this time. And it was just wonderful. They followed my birth plan to AT. And there was so much, I think there was so much healing that came with giving birth again. My relationship with Esme now is beautiful. Oh gosh, I love that girl. But it's also, it's very, it's very tense. She's a very clingy child. And when I had this discussion with my old therapist, she did explain to me the science behind it. When babies are born, they have these synapses in their brain that are encouraged to search for their mother's scent and when they cannot identify their mother's scent those synapses snap in half and they never go back together and because they never go back together that child then becomes an adult who is always looking for their mum they might not be able to describe that feeling but that's what their brain is always doing and it does show up in the way that Esme speaks to me or if I'm going out for a meeting she needs an airtight itinerary about who I'm seeing what I'll be eating at the meeting what time I'll be back and if I'll be back after bedtime I have to wake her up so she knows I'm home our relationship now is one of constant education I'm really trying to get her to accept a life 
where I'm not always going to be there. I don't want her to feel like she can't live her life because she's always looking for her mum. I decided to start an online community called Make Motherhood Diverse, which basically just seeks to encourage a more diverse representation of what motherhood is. The need to start a community like Make Motherhood Diverse was more born out of coming online, looking for those kind of friendship groups and just searching all those motherhood and parenting tags and never seeing myself. Motherhood and parenting for so long had been presented as solely white, middle class, shiny bob, striped t-shirt, £1,000 pushchair, NCT, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I felt so far removed from that, that I, I, I believe the seeds for Make Motherhood Diverse were planted when Esme was born, but they really came above ground a little bit later when I realised that, oh, I'm not the only mother who is concerned with the lack of representation and diversity within the public parenting space. I feel like I need to do something about it. Earlier this year, my first book was published um, and it's called I Am Not Your Baby Mother. The subtitle is What It's Like to Be a Black British Mother. And can you believe that it's the first book about motherhood and parenting written by a black woman backed by a major house in the UK ever? What I learned from the entire experience is how much black women have to advocate for themselves or have people advocate for them. The data surrounding black women dying in childbirth in this country and my experience and the experiences of my friends have really shown me how there is just a gap in care when it comes to black women and maternity. And this is not just a UK problem. The, the figures and the data are very similar in the US, both Serena Williams and and Beyonce have been public about how they feel like they were let down in their maternal care journeys. And these are millionaires saying, you know, I felt like I wasn't listened to. So in comparison, uh, a, a very poor black girl from South London, I already felt like I didn't have a leg to stand on. So what I have learned is the power of having a plan, having people go to appointments with you, making sure everyone knows what you want and how you want things to go. That has been the biggest lesson. I'm very proud of myself. I would. It's taken me a long time to be able to say that because I come from a place, again, as a black woman where you... You're encouraged to be humble about things. I'm, I'm so proud of myself. 16-year-old me is constantly in a corner looking at me with stars in their eyes. Like, the 16-year-old me is looking at me now like I'm Beyonce. She's like, I cannot believe this lady. Like, who is that? Just making it through all those battles and building a business. Like, come on, lady. But, yeah, I'm very proud of me. <laughs> You're listening to Nobody Told Me. I'm your host, Lisa Smazarski, and you've been listening to the story of Candice Brathwaite. Candice's story is a reminder of how quickly life can change course. From the excitement of meeting her daughter for the first time to the life-saving surgery just a few days later. We so often try and control everything about our lives, but as much as we can try and plan for all eventualities, we're sometimes thrown challenges we can't predict. 
As a mother of three myself, I've always been so grateful for the incredible care I've received from the NHS, especially when I had to undergo an emergency procedure after my first son was born. I've now lost count of the conversations with friends about how we've been living in a different time or a different country even. Our own birth stories would have resulted in severe illness, injury, or in some of those worst cases, death, had we not been in the hands of professional medical care. Which I don't want to scare Mangara. Of course, happily, thousands of babies are born every day without intervention or risk. But that's what makes Candice's story and the Embrace report so unbelievably shocking. There is still huge inequality around the medical care mothers are receiving in the UK, and it is impossible to deny the connection between race and maternal health and mortality. It is imperative more is done and quickly to safeguard the health of women especially black women. I can't actually begin to imagine how harrowing Candice's experience was and the impact this had on her at a time when she'd hoped to be bonding with her first child, the weeks she can never get back. Yet the Candice we met today is a proud parent of two, an author, campaigner and a successful parenting influencer, something that might not have seemed possible back on that hospital ward in 2013. From adversity, she found a strength, not only to recover, but to grow and eventually rebuild. I know that in those most bleak of moments, it can be hard to imagine ever even smiling again. Yet like everyone, I was struck by her lightness and humour, even in the back of the ambulance. I've heard people talk of human energy as drains or radiators. Candice isn't just a radiator, she's a lighthouse a magnetic personality that reaches far and wide and offers light to others when they feel most lost. The joy of listening to Candice is the reassurance that whatever life throws at us, we have the chance to find a way. I find that so utterly reassuring, and from her strength, I take strength too. To know more about Candice, you can follow her on Instagram or Twitter or at makemotherhooddiverse.com. And of course, you can get her brilliant book, I Am Not Your Baby Mother. If you have a story and the lessons you learn from it that you want to share in a further episode of Nobody Told Me, or know someone else whose story we should share, email ntm at stylist.co.uk or leave a comment in the podcast store. For more inspiring stories from women around the world, visit stylist.co.uk. Thank you for listening to Nobody Told Me.